I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And I shared last week how excited I was to be back in the Gospel of John all the time. But I feel now more than ever, we need to be turning our eyes to Jesus. And as Christians, we want to be turning the eyes of our world to Christ, that He is what we need. He is the hope. He is the answer. Maybe all of us could use some less screen time and more Jesus time, more focus on Him, that He is on the throne. And the passage we're going to look at today as we get into John chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus clearly demonstrating His power. And I want us to think about how we should respond to that. And I want you to just think about different displays of power that you have seen in your life and what your response has been to those. I remember moving to Texas as a young kid from Southern California where I experienced basically didn't know what a thunderstorm was and then moved to Texas. And I will remember that first night that I woke up and heard the roar of the wind and the rain just pounding down on the house, wondering what in the world is happening until my room just lit up in a flash of light and there was this loud, house-shaking boom that propelled me straight out of my bed as a little kid and down the hallway to mom and dad's bedroom. Because what in the world is going on? It was a display of the power of God through creation that inspired in me as a young kid a real fear. Or I think of another display of power that maybe I've shared with you. One of my favorite things to uh, watch in, in nature is that of the great white shark. And seeing the great white shark swim through the water or jump out of the ocean to try to get its prey. Now, when I'm watching that from my couch through the safety of my TV screen, it inspires awe, not so much that I'm afraid for my life, but I'm amazed at this, at this creature. I'm in, I'm in awe of it. Or if you think, let's, let's change it up in just a totally different display of power and a totally different response, not of you know, shock and awe, but maybe you think about a teacher that you had growing up, or maybe just an overzealous dental hygienist that you used to experience, right? And they're exerting authority, right, in in a different way. And you maybe respond to that by saying, whoa, I I feel like you're overstepping your bounds a little bit by being too strict, by being over the top. And and we don't like that. What I want us to look at is Jesus' display of power, how people responded to it in the moment, And how do you need to respond to the power of Christ today? Because even as we've saying, I mean, he is just as powerful today as he ever was. He is seated on the throne. What what difference should his power make in your life this week? So let's look at this passage together. We're going to look at John 5, verses 1 through 16 today. And it tells the story of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. And there's three clear things and interactions that I want us to to look at, and we'll start just by taking the first half of the passage, and I'll read starting in verse 1 and going down to the middle of verse 9. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he was in Galilee when we looked at last week. Now he's going back to Jerusalem for another feast. And now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, 
he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. So Jesus displays his power in this part of the passage by healing this lame man who had not been able to walk for 38 years. I don't know what you were doing or if you were alive in 1982, but 38 years is a long time. And so this man had not been able to walk for 38 years, and Jesus displays his power by just with a word, boom, he's healed. And he is able to immediately rise up and walk. He is showing his power. But I think it's more than just, when we look at these miracles, we want to understand what specifically is it showing about Christ. I think it's showing us his power, but I think there's more going on. And for you to understand it, I want you to look at verse 4 with me. Look at verse 4 here in John chapter 5. Anybody having any trouble finding verse 4 of John chapter 5? Depending on what translation you have of the Bible, verse 4 might not be there. If you're using the English Standard Version like like I'm doing, verse 4 is not there. And we have to remember, hey, these verses, these were all added hundreds of years later. But what you might see is a footnote that says this, that says some manuscripts insert wholly or in part that these blind, lame and paralyzed people were there waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So that was in some manuscripts. And this obviously raises some questions where it's like, well, wait a minute. Why don't we know what it says? How come some Bibles say this and some Bibles don't? And that's another sermon that we're actually going to preach when we get to John chapter 8. But just to give you a little sneak preview, what's amazing about God's word is when we start asking questions like that and we dig in and we find out what the answers are, we actually leave with more confidence in God's word, not less. And we find out God's word isn't what most people think it is. You know, oh, some book that's been translated so many times, we have no way of knowing what it actually says. We actually find out we have a great deal of certainty what the Bible actually says. Because, yeah, we don't have the original copy of the Gospel of John in a museum somewhere. But what we do have is hundreds and thousands of manuscripts that date back hundreds and thousands of years, and we can know what the Bible is saying better than we can know what any ancient book is saying because of all the manuscript evidence that we have. And so when we come across a problem like this, we can actually dig in and find out what the solution is because we have so many manuscripts. And we understand that if you were reading John 5 and you read verse 7, where this guy is saying to Jesus, I have no one to put me in the pool. I mean, Jesus just asked you, do you want to be healed? I would think the answer would just be a simple, yes, please, right? But he goes into this whole, well, no one's here to put me in the water. What does that mean, right? And probably what happened is some scribe is anticipating. People have no idea what's going on. So I'm going to add this little note of, well, this angel went into the water and stirred up the water, and the first one in was healed. And over time, somebody saw that note and just kind of, copied it into the text of scriptures. They were copying it. And now we have so many copies of scripture that we can go back and pretty much find out that's what happened. We know what God's word 
says. And when people tell you, oh, we can't know, I mean, they just don't know what's going on. They don't know that we can look at the copy of the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was found, or which was written before Jesus even walked the earth, and we can open up our Bibles that we hold in our hands, and we can translate that scroll, and they're going to say the same thing. God's word is incredibly accurate. We can have incredible confidence that it says exactly what God meant it to say. But we'll come back to that when we look at another passage like that in John chapter 8. But what I want you to understand is, well, what's going on with all of this stirring up the waters and this angel coming down and all of that? And I think the simplest way to understand it is whatever scribe put that note in there the first time is trying to explain some superstition that was going on at that pool. That, I mean, the Bible doesn't say this was an angel of the Lord coming, but that's what people thought. And all these injured, blind, uh, invalid people were there waiting for this to happen because they think, if I'm the first one in the water, I'm going to be healed. And so Jesus isn't just showing his power in general over health and over this guy's body. He's also showing his power specifically over the superstition of his day. You think, you know, getting into the water when it's stirred up is going to heal you? No, but I have the power. And so as Jesus proves, hey, he has power, he has power over your health, and he has more power than the superstitions of your day, the first way that I want us to respond to the power of Christ is this. Trust your health to the healer. Point number one this morning. Trust your health to the healer. We've already sung it this morning. Jesus Christ, he is still on the throne. He is still in control. And that includes, he is in control of your health. He knows what's going on. And I think as soon as we start thinking of Jesus as the healer, I'm concerned that there's a lot of misunderstanding that starts to go on. Where some people start expecting, hey, whenever I get sick, I'm going to expect Jesus to heal me just like he healed this man. And you see maybe the most prominent expressions of that kind of thinking is you're, you know, channel surfing and going through the TV and you start finding those preachers who are going to, you know, fling their coats at people and they're going to fall over and then they're going to heal these people and usually heal them if they have enough faith and, oh, by the way, if you give enough money to my ministry. And I think that's, that's manipulative. That's spiritually abusive. That's not what we see in the scripture. And if you watch that channel, you know, Usually, or never, it's not, hey, this guy, look, has genuinely been lame for 38 years, and boom, he's walking. It's, I sense there's a woman with red hair somewhere that might be experiencing pain of some kind. I rebuke it in the name of the Lord, right? So different. I mean, most of what you see there on TV, that's that's bad magic tricks is what it is. And it's, it's, it's fooling people into thinking that this is where the hope is. But I'm concerned that some people almost, we, we overreact to that. And okay, I don't want to be like the crazy TV healer that's basically just preaching a false gospel. But we we react so far that we're just like, okay, well, Jesus, he's not affecting my health at all, right? My my health has nothing to do with, with God. And we even get to a point, I think, where we can be afraid of the word healing. Oh, no, that, that doesn't happen anymore. Well, let's think about what David says when he writes Psalm 103, who said, when he says, hey, bless the Lord, O my soul. And... and Bless the Lord and, and forget not any of his benefits. What's one of those benefits? Who heals all your diseases. 
that instead of maybe just looking for the spectacular and the, and the magical, we need to start realizing in the everyday, Jesus Christ is in control of my health. And every time you get sick and you get better, it would be biblical for you to say, God healed me. Because he still is in control. And we need to realize that as long as we are in this world, we will experience sickness and death. So even that idea that if you have enough faith, you can overcome any illness. I'm going to just point back to 2,000 years of really strong, godly Christians who had a lot of faith. And guess what happened to all of them? They died, right? So Jesus has promised us while we're in this world, we're going to experience sickness. We're going to experience death. But he is in control of all of it. And when we look at the, the superstitious thought that's going on in this passage, people sitting around a pool thinking an angel's going to come and stir up the waters. It's easy for us to say, well, we're not like that anymore. We've become so advanced in our thinking about the health and the body and how it all works. You know? We're not superstitious anymore. Maybe a little stitious, but we're not superstitious anymore. And I want us just to say, really? Are we sure about that? Even as we think about health in this room, I'm sure there's a variety of, of different perspectives, right? I mean, some of you, as soon as you feel any sort of pain, you know, you're going to go to the medicine cabinet, find some, some Tylenol and, and take that right away. And others, you're, you're going to go to your diffuser, put in some oil and, and start letting that spread through the house. And we could go on and on. There's all kinds of different opinions. And don't worry if you're worried I'm about to tell you which one is right and which one is wrong. I'm going to stay in my lane and focus on what the word of God says. Uh, but what I'm concerned about is you all have your opinion, and I bet you look at other people and you're like, oh, yeah, they're superstitious because they do this. And what I want you to do is take a time out and focus on yourself. Because I think all of us, whatever your opinion might be about the best way to fight the common cold is or whatever it is, I think all of us are going to be tempted to trust in that and trust in that medicine or whatever it may be, this, this remedy over here, and to trust in that instead of trust in Jesus who is in control of your health. Even in the Old Testament, it tells the story in Second Chronicles 16 of a king named Asa. And it says at the end of, the, of his life, he had a disease in his feet, and he did not seek the Lord, but all he did, it says he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Now, I think when we put that together with all that the Bible is saying, it's not saying, hey, Christian, when you get sick, don't do anything medical to take care of it. Just pray. But I think it is saying it's, hey, don't trust in physicians or whatever remedy you're trusting in. Trust in God. Seek him. And that gets a little tricky because, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm trusting in this medicine to save me or this lack of medicine to save me? Whatever it may be, I want to give you just three diagnostic questions to ask yourself. And for us, again, not to think about anybody else and, well, what are they doing? But to think about you when you're sick, when you're injured. Are you trusting God or are you trusting something else? Here's three questions. And the first is, are you praying? Are you praying? You know, when you wake up at three in the morning and you feel that tickle in your throat, what's your first response? Is it, well, I'm going to go to the medicine cabinet and grab this medicine and take it, or I'm going to go gargle with this essential oil, or I'm going to go steam up the shower and do that? Well, whatever it is that you might do, if prayer isn't the first response, you're doing it wrong. That, that we shouldn't be trusting in, in anything else more than we're trusting in God. Our first response should be, hey, 
God, I'm calling out to you. I'm seeking your help. I'm seeking your provision. Are you praying? Second question I would ask you is, are you worried? Are you worried? And when we see worry or anxiety presented in Scripture, it's clearly a step beyond having a, a right and wise concern about something, right? If you go to the doctor and he says, hey, we need to do some tests because I'm concerned you might have cancer, it's a very normal and reasonable response to be concerned about that. And that's a serious thing. But when we go beyond that and we start freaking out and we start being afraid and we start living in the world of all these what-if hypotheticals, then we're stepping out of having a trust and a confidence in God. Are you praying? Are you worried? And then third, the question I would ask you is, are you grumpy? Are you grumpy? Really, look again at verse 7. And look at the response of this sick man. And even as I was studying this, almost all the commentators comment on this. You know, Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And again, I would think, yes, please, would be the obvious answer. But he goes off on some rant about how he doesn't have anybody there to, to put him in the water when it's stirred up. And I mean, you can almost read it in that tone of voice. Hey, do you want to be healed? I've got nobody to put me in the water, so I'm never going to be healed. No one's here to help me. I mean, somebody else is always getting in first, right? He's become, even when commentators, he's the, we should read it as, you know, the, the ramblings of a crotchety old man who, who's frustrated with his illness. And, and don't you see people like that that have chronic health problems or maybe they're older and their body's starting to break down and you just see they just become grumpy and frustrated and bitter about all of it. I've seen examples on the other hand, though, as a pastor who's you know, had to regularly make hospital visits now throughout the years. There's so many times where I go to the hospital to encourage some sick person, and I end up driving home the one who's been encouraged. I remember there was this one guy at church I was at. We, we called him Mr. Bill, and he was struggling with, with cancer. And, you know, it's like, oh, Mr. Bill's back in the hospital. Hey, I'll, I'll go visit him. And you, and you walk into the hospital room, and he, he's got worship music blasting. He's got a smile on his face, and he's telling anybody that'll listen the good news about Jesus Christ. He's not sitting there in his hospital said, oh, woe is me. I'm back in the hospital again. I don't know if I'm going to beat this cancer. He's saying, hey, God's on the throne. Whatever happens to me, I know I'm going to spend eternity with him, and I want everyone else to know about it. And let's be real. Health problems are frustrating. When you're sick and, and you can't do what you want to do or you've got some nagging inner injury in your body that's, that's slowing you down, that's, that's frustrating. But if our response is we become grumpy, bitter people, then I can tell you your trust is in the wrong place. Your focus is in the wrong place. It's not trusting God knowing, hey, he's in control. Jesus is in control over my health and he's good. I can trust him. So I don't know if you're going through a health problem right now or those are questions I would encourage you to ask, to know, hey, am I trusting in, in medicine or am I trusting in this remedy or am I really trusting in God? Are you praying? Are you worried? And are you grumpy? Because if we're really trusting in God, we should be praying, we shouldn't be worried, and we should be joyful even in the midst of trial. Why are, we have to always ask when we're studying the Bible, why is this here? What is, what is God's point in telling us this story of healing this man? And I think we clearly see he's showing Jesus has the power over health and especially over the superstitious ideas of men.
And I think even us in our much greater sophistication can still end up just being superstitious, however that might look for us. But Jesus shows his power here not just in what he does, but in how he does it, or more specifically in this case, when he does it. So let's pick it up in the middle of verse 9. And we start to see, I mean, we see the controversy begins is the name of this series. And that's really what we're going to start seeing now. That the, the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is going to go from kind of this cold war to open conflict. And what we're going to see is Jesus, he pokes the bear. I mean, he is the one instigating here and getting this response to the Pharisee by what he's doing and when he's doing it. And we see there in the middle of verse 9, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And that's another example of how this guy isn't exactly one of the heroes of of the faith, right? As soon as, hey, you're not supposed to do that. But the guy who healed me said it, right? Instantly blame shifts to Jesus. And so then the Pharisees ask him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So I want us to focus on two conversations in this part. First, see the conflict between Jesus and the Jews, the religious leaders. And then we'll come back to the the further interaction that Jesus has with the man who was healed. But first, let's think about this whole thing with the Sabbath. And they're frustrated that this guy did this on the Sabbath. Now, even that, isn't that interesting? Hey, this guy, hey, you shouldn't be carrying your mat. Oh, it was the guy who healed me. Now, I would think the response would be, wait a minute, you got healed? You were lame for 38 years, and now you're walking? That's amazing. That's not the response. The response is, wait, you're not supposed to be carrying your mat. Who told you you could carry your mat? What's going on here? The Pharisees are missing the point entirely of what happened. And I think as we respond to the power of Christ, there's a lot of ways people today miss the point. So let's put it down this way. Number two this morning, don't miss the point like the Pharisees. Don't miss the point like the Pharisees. And let's talk about the Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath even is a Hebrew word for rest. It referred to Saturday, the seventh and final day of the week. And they were commanded to rest on the Sabbath. And this goes all the way back to the fourth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it Holy. So 
So it's a command to the people of Israel that, hey, whatever you're normally doing, whatever your work is on Saturday, on the Sabbath day, stop. Take a break. Take a rest. And you should do this because that's what God did. He created the world and everything in it, pretty impressive, in six days. And then on the seventh, he rested. That's where this principle and, and this rule of the Sabbath comes from. Now, I want to show you the verse that, that says you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. Let me find it. Wait a minute. It's not there. It's not in the Bible. There, there is no passage in the Old Testament that says, Thou shalt not carry thou mat on the Sabbath. What it says is, hey, take a break. But what the Pharisees did was take this rule from the, the Ten Commandments, and they said, all right, here's 39 different categories of things that you can't do on the Sabbath day. And guess what was in category 39? Don't carry your mat on the Sabbath. So they took this rule that God had given and turned it into all of these guidelines and extra rules. Now, I kind of had to do that recently when the governor said, hey, phase one, churches reopen. I had to kind of take what he was saying and type up like four pages of guidelines and rules and send it to all of you saying, hey, guys, this is what we've got to do. That wasn't my favorite thing I've ever had to do. I'm not big on like, all right, let's come up with all these rules and, and regulations. Uh, the Pharisees, they ate that kind of stuff for breakfast. I mean, that's what they were all about. Hey, this is what God says. All right, let, let, let's categorize and, and come up with all of these things that you can't do because of this. And so there is absolutely no biblical evidence that this guy was actually doing something that God didn't want him to do. Only he was breaking some man-made tradition that the Pharisees had come up with. And I think that's something that people misunderstand about the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath. They think Jesus is just, you know, hey, the Sabbath isn't a big deal. No, he's saying, Pharisees, you're missing the point of the Sabbath entirely. God made this to be a day of rest, and you've turned it into a burden. God made this to be the best day of the week, and you've turned it into the worst day of the week. As he says in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Pharisees, you have missed the point. And so I'm going to give you two kind of sub-points here under point number two of, of ways I think people still today, like the Pharisees, miss the point. So these are going to go up on the screen, and you need to understand these are things that you shouldn't do. And the first one is focus on externals and traditions instead of the heart and righteousness. Focus on externals and traditions instead of the heart and righteousness. That's what the Pharisees did. And that's what many people do today. And when you do that, you're missing the point, just like the Pharisees. Now, it probably isn't that you have a bunch of regulations about the Sabbath or whatever it may be, and you're missing the point of that. But I think there's a lot of the ways today people just make it about the the outside and doing these things instead of what's going on in the heart. I think there's a lot of people that have a kind of check-the-box mentality. Yeah, I, you know, I, I go to church, check. I, I do this, check. You know, I read my Bible every once in a while, check. I, you know, give to some charity when I feel like it, check. And because of that, I, I must be, you know, doing the right thing. When, well, what's going on in your heart? Is there love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, and the rest of the fruit of the 
the spirit, the things going, coming from your heart, from the inside out, like God wants it. I think another way people do this, even still today, is they start to say that knowledge equals godliness. That the more I know about the Bible and the, the deeper my understanding of theology is, the godlier person I am. Now, let me be very clear. I'm all for as much knowledge as we can possibly get. Let's study the Bible. Let's dig into theology. Let's understand it. But let's never start thinking that just knowing something in my head means that I am living a godly life. Because even working in, in ministry in the churches, I've come across people that, man, they'll, they'll debate you until the cows come home about some finer point of theology but their life and their house and their job is a mess because they know something in their head, but they're not living it out in their life. And they'd love to argue with you about some secondary issue of theology even more than they want to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ with the people that need to hear it the most. That, that's, a, that's a modern pharisaical mindset, thinking about its tradition or what I know, and that's more important than what I'm really living from my heart. But there's even more of the problem with the Pharisees than this. Let's get a little sneak peek of next week. We're going to start to get into verses 17 and 18 and beyond in this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And he answers them because they're upset about him breaking the Sabbath in their mind. And he says, my father is working until now and I am working. And then we find out the real reason the Pharisees are upset This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that's one of the reasons why we believe in the deity of Christ. And when people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, don't believe him for a second. The Pharisees understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. And that was the biggest problem. And they didn't, when we're talking about responding to Jesus' power, they didn't like Jesus' power because he was saying, I have authority over you, not you and your man-made traditions over me. So the second thing that you don't want to do so that you're not like the Pharisees is this, listen to yourself instead of Jesus. That's the ultimate way the Pharisees missed the point because they wanted to listen to themselves more than they wanted to listen to Jesus. And even the bottom line was Jesus was there to try to show them, hey, keeping the law and all the man-made rules that you've added to it is not how you get right with God. You have to admit that you are a sinner, that you've messed up, and you need a Savior. And man, the Pharisees did not like that. And they didn't want to admit that. And that's the thing. There are so many, there's not maybe so many people that are going to shout at you for carrying a mat, you know, on the Sabbath uh, right now. But there are a lot of people out there that think, I'm a good person, I do this, I do that, I'm going to be okay when they don't want to admit I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. And you want to talk about missing the point? That's the whole point of this book. And there's so many people out there still missing that point, thinking that, well, because I haven't done any really bad stuff, I'm okay. When Jesus is saying, no, we've all sinned, you've all, but he's not saying we've sinned because he hasn't. He's saying you have all sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God, but I've given my life for you. I think the most prominent form of American pharisaical thought is this idea that I'm a good person because I don't do the big sins. I believe in God. I'm not an atheist. I'm conservative. I'm faithful to my family. Therefore, I must be all right. 
When Jesus says, no, you must be born again. So don't miss the point like the Pharisees by focusing on the externals or the head knowledge or just listening to yourself instead of Jesus. Now last, I want us to circle back to not so much Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, but when Jesus comes back and finds this man in the temple. If you look again at verses 14 and 15, Jesus says to this man, he says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. That's an interesting statement. And I think the best way to understand that is Jesus is telling this guy, hey, being paralyzed for 38 years, that was some direct consequence for sin in your life. And even in a way that this guy knew that. This guy knew, and I don't know how, it doesn't give us the details. Maybe he was doing something that he shouldn't have been doing when he got injured and hurt. I don't know the specifics, but it seems very clear by how Jesus words it and that he connects sin no more with nothing worse happening to you together, that that was what was true for this guy. Now, when we try to understand the Bible, the Bible is not a book for lazy people. We have to actually think. We have to try to understand because there's ways that people get this wrong. The Bible makes very clear that we can't look at all sickness and all injury and say, well, this person is sick with this because they did this sin. We're going to see that in John chapter 9, and most famous, probably the book of Job. That's what all his friends said. Oh, Job, you must be doing something wrong with all this bad stuff happening to you. That's a wrong way to think. But the Bible also makes clear that sometimes sickness or injury in our life is a direct result of sin. So we can't look at it all and say, well, it must be a result of sin. But on the other hand, we can't act like that never happens. The Bible makes it clear sometimes it does happen. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the Apostle Peter, and he makes it clear, hey, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God, and they're struck down immediately. We're going to read in our Bible reading over the next couple of days, 1 Corinthians 11, where it basically says, hey, some of you have, have died because you weren't taking the Lord's table seriously. We see this happen in Scripture, but more than that, the Bible makes clear sin has all kinds of painful consequences that might not be God stepping in to bring a consequence, but just natural painful consequences of sin. Sin can have painful legal consequences. Sin can have painful family conversations when we sin in, in certain relationships that, that brings all kinds of strife and drama into our lives. Sin can have financial consequences. And many times, sin can have physical consequences. Even just think of the proverb, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. And so what Jesus is telling this guy is, hey, I have taken care. I have graciously restored you and taken care of the consequences of sin in your life. Now I'm telling you, stay away from sin. Stay away from sin. So something like this doesn't happen again. Third lesson I want us to see as we respond to the power of Christ is learn from the consequences of sin. Learn from the consequences of sin. Sin is dangerous. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to this guy. It, it, it'd be wrong to read it as a threat. You know, hey, don't sin or I'm going to get you. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's just saying, sin is dangerous. I've taken care of this consequence, but be careful. 
Because sin has other consequences. Makes me think of what's been going on at my house the last couple of weeks. The highlight of my last couple of weeks has been my, my oldest, my, my daughter, basically just decided she already knew how to ride a bike. And she just hopped on and she's been riding it as much as she possibly can anywhere that will, that will let her. So I've had to, I had to scramble and get a bike so I can keep up with her and follow her around the neighborhood. And that's been so much fun over these last couple weeks. But as we're doing, I'm trying to teach her. And we almost have like this little catechism going on where we're riding along on our bikes together. And I'm like, Hannah, what's the worst thing that could happen to you on a bike? And she knows the answer. She says, get hit by a car, right? Because I'm trying to teach her as we're driving, as we're riding these bikes through our neighborhoods, near streets, crossing streets. Daughter, you need to be careful because if you ever got hit by a car, that could be seriously dangerous and damaging. And I want to just train you. I'm not threatening her in any way. I'm just training her that if we aren't careful on our bikes, especially around streets and cars, bad things could happen. And so I, I want to train her now that, hey, anytime we're approaching a street, we're going to look, we're going to be careful, we're going to watch out. I think that's more what Jesus is saying to this man. It's not a threat. Hey, don't sin or I'll get you. He's saying, hey, sin is dangerous. It wants to get you. So stay away from it. And let me tell you, there is, there is nothing more dangerous and destructive in this world than sin and what it can do to you, what it can do to your family, your loved ones, your friends. I mean, even we're talking about this in the context of healing and, and medical problems. We talked about you know, people with cancer. I have never seen in, in ministry where I've been now given a front row seat to all kinds of trials and problems, whether that's medical problems or people dealing with spiritual problems and coming in for counseling, I have never seen cancer destroy a family. In fact, many times I've seen the opposite. I've seen God work through it, strengthen people's faith like never before, turn it into a, a season of worship. But I can't tell you how many families and lives I've seen destroyed because of sin. There, there's, there, there is no disease out there there is no financial problem there is no problem in the world that can destroy lives like sin can when we start straying away from what god has said we're sailing into dangerous waters and i've seen it time and time again people that don't listen to god and it's a painful painful thing sin wants to destroy you and ultimately, what Jesus is showing, even in this passage, he is saying, I have the power over sin. I have the power to remove the consequences of sin. And more what we're going to see from Jesus, especially as we go on in John, is he's the only one with the power to free you from sin itself. That if you hear a passage like this and you're like, all right, I'm not going to sin anymore so I, don't, so I don't experience the consequences. Well, that's not something that you can do. Do better, try harder is not Christianity. Jesus Christ having the power over sin, winning the victory over sin, giving us power over sin through the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, that's Christianity. And so if you're even dealing with the painful consequences of sin today and you feel like you can't break out of it, I want to make sure you know the only one that has the power over sin is Jesus Christ. And if you turn from trying to do it on your own and put your trust in Him is the only one that can set you free from Sin. He has the power over sin. And unfortunately, I think we see this guy 
he doesn't respond and realize that. He doesn't see that sin was ultimately his biggest problem and that Jesus is the solution to that. Even compare it to last week, the official who, who had his son is healed. It clearly says multiple times that he believed Jesus. We never see anything like that about this man in John 5. In fact, the last thing we see of him is him basically running and snitching on Jesus to the Pharisees and saying, hey, I found out who healed me. It was that guy over there, right? That's the last thing that he does. He doesn't understand it. So I would encourage you today, don't leave here thinking that Jesus' message is ultimately something about your health or your prosperity, but that he wants to set you free from sin. And he's the only one that can do that. And one last thing, just as we think about sin and the serious consequences that it has, it's encouraging to be reminded that we have a Savior who can graciously restore us when we don't deserve it, who can deal with the consequences of sin that we have done. Jesus, he, this, this man had sinned, he had been paralyzed as a result, and Jesus takes that away. And if you're here today and you're still reaping what you've sown, and dealing with consequences of sin that at this point you regret, you've repented of, you've turned away from. I hope that this encourages you, that you have a Savior who can restore, who can forgive, who can redeem these situations. makes me think of one of my favorite verses, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12. When we are experiencing regret over sin in our lives and looking back and saying, man, why did I do that? That was stupid. We're reminded that for the moment, sorry, Hebrews 12, 11 is the verse. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That God never, the consequences of sin as a believer is never God saying, well, yeah, you screwed up, tough, don't be an idiot next time. He's a gracious Savior who is saying, well, I'm going to teach you through this. I'm going to restore you through this. And later what you're going to experience is the peaceful fruit of righteousness after all this. What a great and merciful Savior. So as we think about the power of Christ today, the power of Christ over illness, his authority over what really matters, and his power over sin, none of this is just meant for us to leave here saying, oh, wow, Jesus is cooler than I thought. It should affect our lives. When, when your health is struggling this week, who are you going to trust? When you're dealing with sin this week, who are you going to look to? And what do you really understand life and scripture to be all about? I hope this changes our lives this week. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and we thank you for the power of Jesus. We thank you that he's in control over our health, over the world, and especially, God, that he has broken the power of sin. Lord, and that he can forgive us, he can set us free, and he can even restore us from the consequences of sin that we have committed. And that he is a gracious and loving leader, shepherd, and savior. God, and I pray that nobody here today would miss that point. God, that we all have a deep problem with sin, and Jesus is the only solution. And God, I even just pray that even as we think about our health, even in the midst of everything going on in the world, that we wouldn't be tempted to put our trust in anything else but Christ. And that even some of these questions we've asked would help us make sure that we're thinking carefully about that. God, help us to turn our eyes to Jesus. And God, I pray that especially as things 
open up more, God, that you would open up doors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even this week, you would give us opportunities to point people to Christ. And even as our church continues to reopen, God, that we'd see more people come here and finding Christ and finding freedom from sin and finding hope and truth and joy in Him. God, we pray that in the wake of everything that's going on, we would see a revival like we have never seen before. God, you can do it. There is no limit to your power. And God, may we be the ones leading the charge. God, as we seek your face, may we see you turning the eyes of people around us. God, exalt Jesus Christ in our midst, in the Treasure Valley, around the world. God, lift up the name of Jesus. We pray it all in that name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, have a great...